the longer I live, the more it seems that the ingenuity of humanity is aimed at removing any need to be patient. The wonders that a microwave can perform, they really are staggering when you consider what it used to take to warm a pot pie in the oven. The advent of fast food has changed the game. And if you are not ashamed to admit that you eat fast food, you will now know, so they say, you will now know that there are two fast food car lines because one isn't fast enough. Uh, The homeschooling project that is also known as COVID-19 Schools go on hiatus. Uh, Sitting down with my girls to work on the computer. Hitting a button, downloading a document. Only to see impatience rise up within them and just start hitting. Dad, it's it's not happening. Dad, it's, it's going too slow. Never before are we more connected to information on demand than we currently are. I can remember having conversations growing up and not knowing the answer and having to live in the uncertainty and in the knowledge of not knowing, at least until the next set of encyclopedias came out. Just kidding, I'm not that old. Some of you are. (laughs) I can remember having to wait for movies to come out and not only wait for them to come out, but then... If I didn't get there quick enough, I had to wait until someone else who rented the movie before me returned it. I can remember having to wait when I tried to call someone on the phone. And I got the busy signal. And it didn't go to voicemail. And so you hang up and you keep calling. I can remember having to wait to ride a roller coaster at a theme park without a fast pass. I'm not throwing shade at all of the ways in which we enjoy convenience. I'm mostly just confessing. But you see, how long we're willing to wait says a lot about what we're expecting to gain on the other side of patience. And every one of us can relate to the Christians that James is writing to in the first century here. These Christians were familiar with suffering. If you remember last week, James 5, verses 1 through 6, this idea of Christians not only doing some oppressing of others, but also Christians then receiving that oppression. And as such, they were in need of this specific encouragement to be patient, to wait amid their trials. And who among us doesn't need to be reminded to be patient? And I'm not talking about with silly, trite things like fast food and fast passes. But during prolonged seasons of singleness. During difficult and persistent family issues. During the struggles of infertility. When a grown child walks away from the Lord. When your marriage seems to be unending conflict. When there's a cloud of uncertainty around your job and you're wondering if if there's stability in the future. 
the grief that way, the, the waves of grief that roll in and again and then roll out. And then at moments where you were unexpecting it, for it to roll back in, the grief over unexpected deaths and losses. Persistent health problems. Who among us doesn't need to be reminded and encouraged to wait as we are being reproached, mocked, made fun of, and some parts of the world persecuted for our faith? Who among us doesn't need to be reminded of the need to wait when we simply aren't sure if God is even at work anymore? And so this morning, I want to ask you, are you patient in your suffering? Is there a willingness, is there a readiness to wait as long as the Lord would have you wait? The therefore in verse 7 will connect this text to the passage before it. And again, all of this is reminding us of how James began this letter. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James opened his letter with a call to persevere and to wait and to endure. And like a skilled author, he ends, as he's getting ready to approach the ending of his letter, as he prepares to end it, he revisits this theme. And as an expression of pastoral care, James is calling these Christians to cultivate patience in light of their suffering. And I want to, I want to make clear what I just said. This isn't merely a call to be more patient. Though there are good implications from this about being more patient while you're in traffic and being more patient as you're having to wait on the restaurant or the, there's generally, it's good to be patient. But James is speaking of a patience during your suffering, a patience during your trial, because that patience, he says in the beginning of this whole letter, is producing something within us. You see, sadly, we wait often too long for things that are not simply a very big deal. And we give up on waiting on things that are a big deal. Our expectations for what is to come often are too low. One of the keys to the kind of Christian living that James describes in this letter is the kind of Christian waiting that James describes in these verses. These truths are amazingly relevant for us today. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're in the struggle, take heart and be patient. A gracious God is eager to give you what you lack. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, We approach your throne on the basis of the work of your Son, which has been applied to us by the work of your Spirit. Would you meet with us now? Help us be patient amidst our sufferings. Help us endure. Help us not give up and grow weary.
And so would you use this time? May it be far more effective. May it be profitable as you deem profitability. And so use this sermon, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. And verse 7 will set the tone for the whole passage. Four times in these six verses, James calls his audience brethren or brothers and sisters. It's highlighting the pastoral tone that this section carries. And so don't, don't miss this. This isn't some brow-beating tone that James has. This is a very pastoral, very gentle call for these Christians who are suffering to be patient. And that's the overarching command for the whole passage. It's to be patient. He says it in verse 7. He says it in verse 8. He says it in verse 10. He calls it endurance or steadfastness in verse 11. And so the big idea is to cultivate or to be patient amidst your suffering and amidst your trials. Commentator J. Alec Motier says, patience is the self-restraint which does not hastily respond. And steadfastness is the temperament which does not easily succumb under suffering. It doesn't easily quit. So patience is the self-restraint that doesn't hastily respond. And steadfastness is the temperament that doesn't easily quit. Why are these qualities encouraged? Again, because of what we said at the beginning of this letter, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. When you and I hold up under the afflictions of this life, that's actually the way in which we grow to be more like Christ. In the Christian life, we call this sanctification. We are being set apart, more and more made holy. The way in which God has ordained his people to be made more and more holy is to endure and to persevere under affliction. And so the, the appropriate God-glorifying response to a trial is patience. And yet that's, the, that's one of the most unnatural responses to trials and affliction, patience. This requires extraordinary grace. And the question, right, the question that we would all be asking if we were in James' original audience, and perhaps we're asking that even this morning, okay, the call, the command to be patient, how? How? How in the world am I to be patient amidst trials and suffering? The last thing I want to do is remain in it. So how do I cultivate patience? Well, James gives us five encouragements to help cultivate patience amidst our trials. Five encouragements. Let's follow them through the text. Number one, anticipate the coming of Jesus. Anticipate the coming of Jesus. You see this in verse seven. Therefore, be patient. Brethren, until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. James is going to contend that the way in which we can cultivate patience, even when life is difficult, even when life is hard, even with circumstances are not favorable, is to look forward to one event. And that one event it's not 
financial independence. It's not vocational success. It's not college achievements. It's not retirement. It's not any of life's next best things that you're looking forward to. No, James would say, if that's what you're looking forward to, if your hope in the midst of trial is for a change of circumstance or a better circumstance, that is not going to last. That will not anchor your soul down. Do you know why? Because that circumstance will not be permanent as well. And many times those, those pursuits, what we end up finding is what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes tell us. He tells us that it, searching and pursuing and chasing after these things, it's all vanity of vanities, a grasping after the wind. And so what's the event that James is saying? If you want to, if you want to grow and be anchored and cultivate patience amidst your trial, look to the return of Jesus Christ. Consider the second coming. He references this return again in verse 8. He alludes to it again in verse 9. What's interesting is that the return of Jesus is alluded to over 300 times in the New Testament. What that practically means is at least once in almost every 13 verses, some New Testament writer is speaking to and looking to the return of Jesus. This was of massive significance to the early Christians. And sadly, over time, the return of Jesus and the anticipation for it and the knowledge about it, sadly, that is becoming more and more neglected in the church today. You say, well, why is that? Well, I, I think in part it's confusion over the tribulation and the millennium and how is it all going to fit together and when's this going to happen? And James would just encourage us, if you are not patient in your sufferings, study the return of Jesus. Consider the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And it's, it's interesting, amidst all the uncertainty that we have about the return of Jesus, everybody agrees on the fact that he's coming back. And when he, he comes back, his return will be a surprise. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. His return will be a surprise. His, his return will be sudden. Matthew 24, 44. For this reason, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. The return of Jesus will be surprising. It will be sudden. It will also be spectacular. Matthew 24, 27 through 31. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man be. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. It will be unmistakable. No one will be sitting around thinking, ah, did you catch a glimpse of something over there, almost like a transformer blue? No. There will be no question as to what's happening. It will be a surprise. It will be sudden. It will be spectacular. And because it's an S, there will also be separation. Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41. 
There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. James so serves the souls of his audience. He so so serves our souls this morning. James is reminding us that this world is not all there is. That there is a world to come and there is a king who will reign whom every heart longs for and he will reign in totality. Just think with me about the image of of a tapestry. God in great grace has been weaving his plans and his purposes all throughout history. And from our perspective, you ever just get the sense that all you see are a bunch of snags and knots and dangled pieces of thread? And it's like, I have no clue what in the world is happening, but this doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just this ball of, of I, I'm not a tapestry person. I don't know if it's a ball or if it's just a tangled mess of strings. And what we fail to realize is that tangled mess of strings, the suffering, the brokenness, it is all producing something on the other side. And the way it's producing something on the other side is not chance, it's not happenstance. It's there's an artist. There's one who's weaving every piece of thread in just the right place. And James is saying, when he returns... He will flip the tapestry and it will all make sense. And we will find ourselves saying, ah, now I see. If I would have had this perspective, I would have been much more patient. I would have been able to endure. Brothers and sisters, the artist is still at work. And so wait, wait patiently. Do you know what happens when he returns? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will, be no, there will no longer be any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Brothers, James would encourage us, and I would contend by first looking in my own heart, but also just listening to the conversations that our church family has, that the the larger church community has, We neglect considering the return of Jesus. He is coming. And anticipating his return will help you and I be patient now. Every trouble, every suffering, every injustice has an expiration date. I mean, have you ever put your two weeks notice in? And have you ever found that after you put your two weeks notice in, all of the difficulties that grated at you and you felt like, I can't endure this anymore, all of a sudden they became a little bit more bearable. 
It's not that the, the job got easier. It's not that everybody got nicer. No, it's that there was a better picture of your future that you could see. And seeing that changed everything about your experience in the moment. A vision of a better future changes how we experience the present. And every one of us, we need a vision of a better future than what this world offers. And the Bible guarantees that. The Bible promises a better future. The Bible says there is a better city to come. We live in Tampa, folk. I love this city. There's a better city. Some of you live in St. Pete. That's a, that's a beautiful city. There's a better city. Some of you live in Brandon. You get that there's a better city. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. It's to our detriment that we have neglected the return of Jesus. Because if you just flip through the New Testament, the New Testament writers over and over and over use this as a source of encouragement. When their hearts are growing weary, let's look for the city that is to come. I'm not gonna read these, but just 1 Peter 4, 7, Romans 8, 18, Titus 2, 13. The patience that saints of old had amidst their suffering is informed by their consideration of his return and the guarantee of the promise of his return. When you and I consider a glorious future, it creates patience for present suffering. Considering a glorious future creates, creates patience for present suffering. In light of the glorious reward, James exhorts, be patient. And then he gives them an example in verse seven, the example of a farmer. This farmer who's waiting on early and late rains, that would have been common to the reader. There was an early rain in Palestine in November that would sort of set the seed, it would rain a lot, but that, that first rain, that early rain was important. And then that late rain that would happen in the spring, to ensure maximum fruitfulness from the harvest. And the point of the example is that the farmer had to be patient in waiting. He had to be patient. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't idle. He was diligently waiting. And just as the farmer waits for his crop, so too do Christians wait for the return of their Savior. The farmer, here's the crazy thing, the farmer didn't have a guarantee for a future crop. Christians have a guarantee of a future return. Second thing James encourages them with to cultivate patience. So number one, anticipate the coming of Jesus. Number two, strengthen your heart. Strengthen your heart. We see this in verse eight. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. He strengthens the call for being patient by repeating it in verse eight. And then he urges them in order to, to be patient, he urges them to establish, to strengthen their hearts. Sometimes we think that when I wait, I do nothing. And so waiting is just sort of this dead period and this boring time where I'm doing nothing. And James is actually saying, no, during the waiting you strengthen. You are strengthening your hearts as you wait. 
The work during waiting is active. Their hearts are not to be governed by difficult circumstances, so they fight against that. They give attention to their hearts. How is this done? It's done by raising the gaze of their hearts off of their circumstance and to the return of the Lord. Patience is the fruit and the effect of a heart that is being established and strengthened by considering the return of Christ. If you find that you are impatient during your trials, if this hope of his return is vague to you, if it doesn't affect how you live day in and day out, you may need to take up a study on the return of Jesus. James expects that the return of Jesus will make a discernible difference in how we live particularly in how we endure suffering. The idea is to fix or to strengthen or to set our hearts on the Lord. So how do we, how do, we, how do, we do that? It's the same word that Luke uses in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. The whole gospel of Luke turns in Luke 9, 51. Because it says that he set his face, he determined to go to Jerusalem. And everything after Luke 50, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, is Jesus then, step every step along the way, he is heading to Jerusalem. And in the same way, we are to fix our eyes on the goal of the coming Jesus Christ, who fixed his eye on the work of the cross and the resurrection. And so what do you need to do to fortify, to strengthen, to establish your heart? If you were to go back and read James chapter 5, verse 5, what you would find is this indictment about having a fattened heart. And this is the opposite here. He's saying, have a fit heart by setting your gaze in the right direction. Faith is like a muscle that's needing to be strengthened. So how can we strengthen our hearts amidst trial? Commit, endure in spending regular time with the Lord in his word and through prayer. I mean, one of the first casualties in any suffering, in any season of suffering, is to just sort of think, I don't have time, and I'm not motivated to spend any time with the Lord. The biblical principle of sowing and reaping would be really, really good for us to remember. If we sow distance, we will reap the effect of that. If we sow faithfulness, we will reap the reward of that. Spend regular time in the Lord, word and prayer. Regularly gather with his people to sit under the word. Join with other Christians in a local expression of his, of his church to serve and to be served, to have meaningful accountability. If we don't do any of those things, we will feel unestablished and distant from the Lord. And so to establish our hearts means that we make this convictional choice that's motivated not by trying to earn something, but it's motivated by grace. A grace-motivated decision to set my heart upon the Lord. Trusting in who God is and what he has done will help strengthen our hearts. If you have a goal of getting fit, and you sign up to join a gym, and you walk in, and you spend your time assessing the equipment 
of the gym, never using that equipment, you will not get fit. In like fashion, exercise. The ordinary means of grace to know your God. Don't rest with mere knowledge that God is love. The Christian life is growing in depth of what we know and how that changes us. You see, waiting exposes the weaknesses of our heart because we doubt and we begin to question the goodness of God and we wonder, in fact, whether he is with us and whether he will be faithful to his promises and if he will make provisions. There's a war that's, that's happening anytime we are asked to wait and the war isn't happening outside of us. The war is waging within us. There's an enemy who would whisper to us, God isn't faithful. He's not near. He doesn't hear you. And James is saying, establish your hearts. Set your heart there. Fight the fight of faith. Fight for your own heart. Send the roots of your heart down deep into the promises of God. Drink in the word of God and fight for your heart. I love what Paul says about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. It says that Abraham waited those long years for a promised son, Isaac, and while he waited, he grew in faith. That's the way it should be. In the wait, we meditate on the word, we bathe ourselves in his promises, we remember his grace in our own lives, everything we do. We do it so that we can feed ourselves with the rich nutrients of who God is rather than giving way to temptations of doubt and fear. Second encouragement, strengthen your hearts. Third encouragement, avoid grumbling against one another. Avoid grumbling against one another. And you may say this is an interesting, we see this in verse nine. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that, you're, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is interesting. Okay, I want, to, I want to persevere in patience. I want to hold up under patience. How do I do that? By not complaining against other people? Seems to be a bit of a stretch. But immediately following this call to establish their hearts, James warns against the common temptation during any trial. And that's to grumble against others, to complain against others. You see, if we don't establish and strengthen our hearts and cultivate patience in the middle of a trial, contemplating his return, then we're vulnerable to criticizing one another. Think about that. If, we're, if our hope and our gaze is not on the future return of the Lord, and that's not anchoring our hope, then whenever things get difficult, we seek to place our hope in other things, oftentimes in other people. And when we place our hope in other people and not on the Lord himself, guess what? Disappointment is inevitable. And where disappointment is inevitable, grumbling and complaining will soon follow. Grumbling about others is an evidence of misplaced hope. Complaining against others is an evidence of misplaced hope. Expecting and demanding from others what only God can provide. And so just a 
just a, a warning sign here on the engine dashboard. Not the engine dashboard, the dashboard about your engine. Finding faults in others is a warning sign of misplaced hope. You see, those who are suffering, those who are walking through certain trials, they can easily begin to criticize others. And perhaps you're familiar with how some of the criticism goes. Oh, you've never been in my shoes. You don't know what it's like to suffer the way I'm suffering. And in the moment of your need to reach out and to be served by another, you are grumbling against another because the suffering looks differently. Someone doesn't understand your suffering. Someone isn't doing enough suffering with you. Someone is not caring for you. But the temptation to grumble is not just for those that are suffering. Those who are prosperous can easily criticize those who are suffering. They're not trusting God enough. They're not rejoicing in the Lord amidst their suffering. Grumbling about others places us in the line of potential discipline from the Lord. And grumbling and complaining against others, that seems so minor to us. But the warning of James is that it's serious. James' assessment of the seriousness of sin is so helpful for me. God is protecting us from sin and its consequences from this letter. So James says, do not complain against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. And then he gives this picture. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I heard a story once of a child in a heated moment with his mom, called his mom a fool. But what the child didn't know is about the time that the brash words came out of his mouth, the dad had made an appearance standing at the door. Mom, you're a fool. And the next voice that the child heard was that of his dad. Who's a fool? To which the child replied, I am. I'm a fool. And we know, do we not? Do we not know those moments where you say something and as soon as you say it, you realize, ah, they're, they're behind me, aren't they? And everything, I, I just want to get the word back and it's already gone and yet they're there. Why is there an impulse to get the word back? Do you know why? Because their presence makes a difference. And James is writing to encourage these Christians, be careful because when you grumble against another and that goes out, remember who's at the door. The judge. The judge is at the door. And him being at the door affects what we say. At any moment, he might open the door and return. So don't grumble. Don't complain against one another. And when we suffer, we need to be on high alert. This is how you protect the unity of the church and you promote the spread of the gospel in the midst of the trials. You establish your heart on his return and you watch what you say. And he's speaking of a judgment here. He's writing to Christians so that it's not that if they say something, their salvation is at, 
is at stake. No, he's talking about what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, that there would be a, a judgment of works and everything that's useless in our lives will be burned up. Don't grumble, James would say. And in grumbling and complaining, so lose your reward. Leads us to the fourth encouragement. To consider the example of others. Consider the example of others. We see this in verses 10 and 11. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. James calls them to consider others, the example, the patient example of others. If you are struggling to be patient amidst trial, James would say, consider those who've gone before you that have been patient. And he says, remember the prophets. And no matter who you pick in the Old Testament, the prophets were familiar with suffering and having to wait. Their faithfulness to God didn't exempt them from suffering. In fact, their faithfulness to God ensured that they would experience suffering. And so too with us. Any prophet, and you will find an example of suffering and patience. Commentator Doug Moose says, to be blessed, to be blessed is not the same as being happy. Blessing is the objective, unalterable approval and the reward of God. And that's what we set our mind on. We set our mind on the blessing of the Lord. We consider the prophets who were blessed and we consider Job who was blessed. We long for that blessing. We long for that approval and that reward. And that end should inspire us to study the example of patience and suffering in the lives of others. James understood the value of godly examples. And so it would be wise of you and I, as James would say, remember the prophets. It would be a really good question for each of us to go, am I even familiar with the Old Testament prophets? And if you're not, if I could just encourage you, take the next three to four months and get to know one or two. Spend time reading the scriptures. Become acquainted with them over the next few months. In, in fact, if you continue to come to Covenant Life on Sunday mornings or watch Covenant Life, however long we hope it's coming sooner rather than later, we will, we will have the privilege of hearing from two, Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Read. Let the example of others throughout church history serve your soul. I try to be discipled by J.C. Ryle from the grave. J.C. Ryle has a book called Five English Reformers. Just get it and read about patience amidst suffering. Read Elizabeth Elliot, A Chance to Die. Read Faithful Women and Their Extraordinary God by Noel Piper. There are compelling examples all throughout church history and in the word that are meant to serve our souls as it pertains to suffering and patience and the grace that is found when we wait. And James doesn't just point to the prophets. He, he says in verse 11, consider Job. Again, he's assuming that they're familiar with Job. And you say, wait a minute, if you know anything about the book of Job, what you will find is that Job loudly 
arrogantly, incessantly complained about the injustice of his suffering. And Job even had the audacity to demand God to give him an answer. And if anything, the Psalms have taught us something similar. Take your frustrations and hurts and brokenness to the Lord and allow him to meet with you during the waiting. It may seem that Job wasn't all that patient, but Job did persevere. Job was steadfast in his pursuit of God through it all. I mean, right, his wife even shows up. He's taking broken bits of pots and clay, clay pots, and he's scraping the boils off it. And his wife's like, just, just quit on God. Reject God. Denounce God. But yet in his relentless pursuit of God, he would even say at one time, though he slay me, still I praise him. I will hope in him. His love for God, the relentless pursuit, it was a pronounced evidence of grace. And verse 11 ends with a very telling statement. I, I even wrestled and debated this week about making this point number five. Point number five, but I chose not to. Because I think it's clearly seen connected to the lives of the prophets and the life of Job. Look at what he says at the end of verse 11. What you have seen and how the Lord deals with the prophets in Job is that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You see, when we remember the example of others, what we will find ourselves doing is not only learning a lot about Job, we will find ourselves learning a lot about the Job whom God, uh, the God whom Job belonged to. We will find ourselves, when people are faithful to suffer and to wait, we find ourselves attracted to and drawn to the God who has anchored their soul. The end of Job's story is meant to be a comfort to these struggling, oppressed Christians in the midst of their painful story. Job's suffering wasn't the end of Job's story. No, in fact, God revealed his greatness. God quieted Job's agitated heart. And all the while, Job's knowledge of God strengthened or it deepened his relationship with God, strengthened. And this was the purpose for the suffering. It was through the suffering that the mercies of God were revealed to Job in a way that he had not known before. And let's just be 100% honest. Right now in glory, if we were to approach Jeremiah, who weeped his entire ministry and looked at him in the face and said, was it even worth it? Jeremiah would say, of course it was worth it. Job, was it worth it? Should you have denounced God? Job would have said, of course it was worth it. There's not a prophet whose testimony would not be anything other than it was worth it. And so for those of you who are suffering, take heart. If you belong to God, like Job, your suffering is not the end of your story. He will not act any differently toward you. He may not, he may not, do the, he may not give you what he gave Job, 
but his faithfulness will be the same. How amazing that the lesson of Job and all the prophets is meant to encourage us and remind us that the Lord is compassionate and he's full of mercy. This is who he is. He's not only compassionate and merciful, he's more than that. But who he is deep down is compassionate and merciful. This is his heart. This is who he's showing himself to be and what he's doing for his people in the ups and downs of history, in the snags and in the balls of yarn on the other side of the tapestry, in the blessings and in the hardships, in their so-called fortunes and misfortunes. He's giving his people the most precious gift possible. And that's not absence of conflict, it's himself. That's what God gives his people so they can see who he really is and they can enjoy him for everything that he's worth in the brightest of days and in the darkest of times when his people seem to be on top or when they're the ones who are being oppressed and beat down at the bottom. God is orchestrating all eras and he's crafting human history in all its details in such a way that his people will learn this precious reality in more depth and in more sweetness that God is compassionate. And he is merciful. And when you and I go deep with God and we wait in the suffering, this is what we find again and again. New layers and new textures to the depths that he's compassionate and he's merciful. This is our God. And this is one of the great privileges in life and blessings of life. This is where we get to know him best. And that leads us to our fifth encouragement to cultivate patience. Avoid making promises that you won't keep. Avoid making promises that you won't keep. If you were to read James in one sitting and you read through James 5 and you get to verse 12, there is sort of a scratching of the head moment when you think, how does this fit in? And then when you think, he says, but above all, do not swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I think there is a, a connection here. Don't make promises that you can't keep. It is tempting during trials to make promises that we don't intend to keep. I don't know if, I don't know if maybe I was just weird. I can remember growing up and like getting in trouble and being in a moment of everything from like, I feel sick to I'm in trouble. And I just, I wasn't even a Christian. I would just pray. And I, would, I would make so many, if you do this for me, I will never do this. I just over and over. And there's something about the pressure of a trial that tempts our hearts to begin to make statements and promises that we don't intend to keep. It's clear that God isn't what's driving and his glory isn't what's driving that. It's me and my comfort. There's a warning against lying and deceitfulness in how you speak with one another. I mean, just think about what James is saying. Why would you make someone take an oath or swear to you? And, and let's be clear, this isn't talking about people that are going into uh, courts and you get subpoenaed and you have to testify and because you're a Christian, you should demand not to place your hand on the Bible and promise to. Uh, James isn't speaking of formality, of let's make sure that what we're saying is the truth. James is saying, as believers, 
all of our conversations ought to be marked by truthfulness. I make people promise, take an oath to me in order to sort of make a distinction between, okay, what you normally say probably isn't true. I need you to really be true right now. And that's why I would take an oath, right? I talk to you for an hour. I get to the end. I say, listen, I'll do this. No, listen, I promise I'll do this. Well, somewhere I'm now really serious about what I'm saying, but I haven't been really serious about everything before. We swear and we make promises to show that somehow now, after the promise, we're being more truthful. And James says, no, prove your integrity with honest speech all the time. Just be honest. That ought to mark followers of Jesus. James tells us that we must be people of our word. And in the midst of our struggles, we must be people who do not sin with our tongues. But to be faithful it really fits into the theme of the whole letter, a call away from being double-minded, saying one thing and yet doing another, professing one thing and yet doing, doing another. And James is just saying, no, 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 just be single-minded. And as we're single-minded, it helps us to be patient people. And so James has made clear the call, be patient. And he doesn't leave us with just a command. He exhorts us in ways in which we can cultivate patience. And here's the thing. A, a sermon full of commands is a, David, is a dangerous sermon to preach. Even all my points, all my points are, are sort of imperatives, actions. Do X, do X, do Y, do Y, do Z. And sermons full of commands are dangerous because, number one, we can despair at our inability to do it all. Or, number two, we think that if we work hard enough, then we can earn something. We can do it. Those are two ditches. I despair because I can't do all of that. And so I leave feeling condemned. Or, oh yeah, I can do that. And I leave feeling as though I can earn something, as though my works could merit something. And both of those ditches are wrong understandings of commands in light of the greatest prophet who ever lived. Right, So when, when James is saying, consider the prophets, yes, he is wanting them to take their, their mind's eye back to consider the saints who suffered before them. But the New Testament makes clear that the, the ultimate, the supreme, the greatest prophet was also one who suffered and endured patiently. And he suffered and endured patiently, not for the penalty of his sin, but for the penalty of those sins whom his people would commit to endure the penalty of sin for a people who didn't even want him. This passage calls us to remember and look to Jesus. Jesus was perfectly patient. Jesus strengthened his heart. Jesus never complained against his brothers. Jesus is the righteous judge who was the perfect example of suffering and patience, who is the greater prophet, who was blessed by enduring, who is full of compassion and mercy, and who kept his word in all things. James chapter 5 ought to remind us, in the midst of all the commands that we ought to do, it ought to remind us that we need the righteous work of Christ in our account because we can't do it all. And good news, 
for all sinners who would turn from trying to do it all and trust in the finished work of Jesus, his sinless life, his death on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God for the penalty of sin, experiencing, tasting judgment, and then for the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, all who would place their faith and their trust in that work of Christ, they can know that forgiveness. And we need the righteous work of Jesus because we can't be good enough. We need his death in our place as a substitute for our sin to make a satisfactory payment for the penalty of our sin. And we need his resurrection to attain, to ensure that we get what we were redeemed for, and that's an eternity with God. So if you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you. The Lord will return. And on that day, apart from faith in him, you will not know mercy and compassion, but you can. You can. Think about the world that is to come, and may that inform how you live now. But the need for Jesus is not just in giving forgiveness for the ways we don't keep these commands. But we need Jesus because the only way we can keep these commands is in and through and by his Holy Spirit. He's why we wait. He's how we wait. And he meets us in the waiting during our trials with a glorious grace. Do you know this, Jesus? Have you found in a hard and broken world remarkable peace peace and rest in him? He understands and he suffered for your salvation. And so hear the exhortation of James this morning. In the midst of your suffering, be patient and wait because the Lord is compassionate and he's full of mercy. Let's pray. Our holy God, as we consider the sufferings of this world and as we consider the need to wait, would you close the gap? By your spirit right now, would you help us see the gap and would you help us close it? And Lord, I just pray generally during this time of silent reflection that you would just impress upon each heart of every member of this church the need to anticipate and long for your return. May we do away with the faulty notion that it's possible, it's possible to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. No, what we need on this earth is more of a view of heaven. And so in this moment of silent reflection, would you speak to us by your spirit, we pray.